All right. Let's do it. It's really surprising that the dinner preparation at Georgia Tech would be down to a science. But they beat Elan yesterday. That was pretty awesome. They beat Elan College in football. That was good. My team didn't do so well. But uh, this isn't about that. So. We did do Dragon Con yesterday. Anybody? It was awesome. My son came in at like 8 a.m. You know, we have two kids, so we're up, right? There's no such thing as like sleep until noon. Um, because if you do, like, somebody dies. Like, somebody dies. <laughs> but he comes in, and he's like, what are we going to do today? Because that's what you do when you're 11. And I was like, we're getting on the train, and we're going downtown. And he was like, what's downtown? I was like, what's not downtown is what's happening. <laughs> so we got on the train and went down there, and it was phenomenal. Actually, the train was packed. Like, that, I didn't tell him what it was. And so we get on the train, and there's, like, people in their regalia. And uh, I'm just standing there like, this, this is just a taste, a foretaste of what you're going to see and experience, and uh, he loved it. So uh, we also rode that new, is it called a Ferris wheel? Is that what it's called? I don't know what it's called, but we got on it. And uh, it's not cheap, by the way. It was like 18 bucks to see the top of the tabernacle seven times. Like, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much what it was. So, uh, so that will be the last time we do that. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool otherwise. So. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We just finished up a series of teachings on uh, community growth service. We do it every year. We do it close to the fall, right before small groups kick in uh, and parish stuff kicks in. So, I mean, we've done with that. Those series are available, actually, for, for the taking. They're free. They're on that table uh, in the lobby. You can take one if you really enjoyed that series. <laughs> we were making them, and uh, I just made 10 copies uh, and, uh, you know, my, my staff was like, just 10? I'm like, it wasn't that great of a series. So we'll just see what happens. But they're free for the taking if you would like one. Um, and then next week we start a series on prayer. It's going to be four weeks. The art is done, but we didn't want to put it up today. Uh, that's why it just looks so vacuous up here. It's what it used to look like all the time before we thought, let's put some stuff on the wall. But, uh, man, I'm going to tell you what, what's, what's going to get hung is you're just going to love it. So don't, don't miss the, don't miss it. Um, so that's starting next week. So today, you know, what do you do on Labor Day weekend? Uh, you talk about work. You talk about stuff that we don't want to talk about, right? So I thought, why don't, we, why don't I do this? I've never done this before. And I will tell you that after studying for this and writing this thing out and thinking through it, this really, and you'll feel this today at some point because it's going to be a lot of information, but it, it really feels like it needs to be a series. Like, let's just talk about what it means to have a job. And uh, what, is the, what, is the, what do the scriptures actually say about work? And do they say anything at all? And uh, all that. So instead of just calling it like, we're going to talk about work today, I thought I'd give it a nice, you know, church spin. So we're calling it the theology of vocation. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's really smoke and mirrors. I hope that interests you a little bit. Hmm, uh, intriguing. Theology of vocation. Not vacation. That's a whole other series. <laughs> vocation. Uh, I thought I would start with the four dream jobs that I, that I wanted when I was in high school I don't really care about the jobs I wanted when I was, you know, uh, 10 or 11, because that's all, I don't even remember actually that far ago back, but um, I do remember the four things I really wanted to be when I was in high school, and, and as you will see as I run through this list, you will see how lucrative these dreams were, okay? <laughs> uh, 
and these are all true, and I'm not making this up just because I needed five minutes or ten at the beginning of the sermon. Um, the first thing I really, really started to, to be passionate about was I wanted to be a professional runner. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, I know there's a lot going on in your mind right now, like, you really are a runner. But there was a day, there was a day. And uh, colleges were, you know, calling, and it was fun. But, like, I really had this, I started to voice, like, I want to be, that's what I want to do. Like, we would, I want to run road races for a living. That's what I want to do. And my uncle would be like, you can't, nobody makes money doing that. You can't do that. And I was like, of course you can. You can make, like, 25 Gs a year (laughs) as a professional runner. Like, that was awesome, you know, in 1988 uh, as a 15-year-old. Like, that's, that's what I wanted to do. But, obviously, that dream that dream didn't pan out. Um, the other thing that I really wanted to do, and this is still kind of a dream, but to be a bike messenger would be the coolest job. Uh, anybody a bike messenger in here? Nobody? Okay, yeah. Uh, I don't know how long they live, but they... <laughs> a couple, was it a couple weeks ago, Kyle, you saw the guy, one of the Jimmy John's guys, the sub-delivery guys, like, barreled into a guy in a suit, like, waiting across the street. I would have given anything to see that, but <laughs> so you know, it's got a, there's a risk to it. But when we go visit our friends in, in Manhattan, like really all I need is like 20 bucks for coffee and a park bench, and I can just sit there and watch these guys work, like just back and forth all day delivering things. And like, what a job, you know? That would just be. What do you think about when you're doing that all day? Like nothing. Like just I'm just strolling around town, you know, not stressed or whatever. It'd be great. Um, so as you can see, my dreams are lucrative. Um, the other, the other dream is more of a vacation. Like, what what would I do if I had a three week vacation? Uh, and Ian and I are in on this one together. But like, to be in the team car of a Tour de France team for the three weeks of the tour would be the coolest thing. Like, because you know you got the coach in there and you got the mechanic and uh, and you're handing out feed bags and you're just in the Alps, right? And you're you're doing about twenty miles an hour for three weeks. But that would be that would be an awesome job. Like. What do you do? I just, man, I just sit in this car and watch cyclists. It's just (laughs) so cool. Uh, The last thing, this this was probably the driving thing for me, was that I, I wanted more than anything to be in a band. Like, to be in a rock and roll band was like the thing for me. Is anybody in a band? Anybody trying? I know Nick's in a band. We went through this last service. I made a joke that Nick's not really in a real band, but it is a real band, even though they scream and throw things, but it is a band. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anybody read my interview with Nick uh, from the newsletter? You guys got to check that out? Okay, cool, yeah. So Nick plays bass, and, but what I was saying last service was like, uh, in high school, like, everybody played guitar, and then you found the one guy that could play drums, and he had a set, and you had to track down a bass player because nobody plays bass. And, um, but that first time you played with a band... Is anybody with me on this? Yeah. You guys are so corporate. You don't play in bands. <laughs> Went to college. Got a degree. I can use Excel. Uh, but the thing is, like, the first time you plug in and you look at everybody and you go, okay, everybody just start playing, right? It's incredible. Like, it's this thing, like, because it's terrible, you're autumn, like, the first few seconds of playing in a band, you know that you have to get better. 
Like that's the thing, like we gotta get better at this, we gotta get better and better and better. And so it just becomes this drive to like, and so I was in so many bands and played with so many people and I could go on for hours about that. I spent so much money and so much time going in and out of the Roxy down the street here, which is now the Buckhead Theater, um, and just seeing band after band after band and just going to shows. I mean, I could, I could have another house, you know, for the money that I've spent on concerts and just the live music thing to me was, that's what I wanted to do, right? Um, and so if I could have been in a rock and roll band, that would have just been so cool. As you noticed, uh, over the last couple weeks, Jeff has not been here. But Jeff's on vacation. We didn't fire him. He's great. Uh, but he just had a couple, he had like a couple weekends where he could just go and do whatever. And he didn't tell us where he's going because he didn't really know. And um, he, uh, he sent me a text right before the weekend started. And it was just him shirtless, like in running shorts. I'm not going to show you that picture. But <laughs> he was out. He was out running, and he sends me this picture, and like, I don't know why he sent me the picture, but behind him, then I saw he was standing on the top of the mountain or the hill in L.A. above the Hollywood sign. Like, I could see the lettering, but I was like, oh, he's in, he's not here, he's out there. And so I texted him back, and I was like, are you in L.A., or is this from a while back, or when? He's like, yeah, I'm out here visiting a friend and whatnot. And I said, my next text to him was, okay, cool, uh, I need a picture of you in front of the Whiskey A Go Go on Sunset Boulevard, right? So about a half hour later, I get this picture. Now, you can't really see Jeff, but he's a little small guy on the right. Uh, and so, do you know about this club? Yeah. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> you and me. That's it. The Doors played at the Whiskey A Go Go. Like, this is the club on Sunset. So, uh, my friend and I were out in LA for a conference back when we were in youth ministry, working in the toy department. And uh, we were out there, and he is about six years younger than me, and we're driving down Sunset just because we've never been there. And I see the whiskey go, and I was like, "Dude, pull the car over!" And he pulls it over like he thinks something's wrong, and he's like, "What?" And I was like, "Dude, it's the whiskey go go." And he's he's a basketball fan. That's like all he does. So he's like, "What is the whiskey go go?" So I was like, "We we cease to be friends at that point." But uh, <laughs> so, Guns and Roses, man, they got their start there. Um, so. I don't know why I told that story. Oh, because I like rock and roll. But uh, there you go. So let's talk about work. Um, <laughs> let's take the picture of Jeff away. Um, <laughs> he'll be back next week. Um, now, here's the thing. I want to tread lightly when I talk about vocation because I love what I do, right? Even in the worst of times, um, I still love what I do. Like, I don't, I don't want to do anything else, right? And the longer that I'm doing what I do and the more education I get in my field, you know, the more theology I learn, like, the less valuable I become to society anyway. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of removing myself from any sort of skill set that's needed in culture. But I do love what I do, and so I want to tread lightly because I recognize that many of you may not. And in my conversations with many of you, either through emails and even through the people uh, you know, in conversations as well, but also in the people that I know in my building when we talk about, you know, how's your day going, how's your job, like it's never usually positive uh, when they start talking about work, and I don't know if you sort of believe or trust all the polls, but the latest Gallup polls that like something like 77% of people in U.S. America, like they're not really into their jobs, they don't really like their jobs. Um, I was reading an article about the 10 or 20 worst places to work in America, and Google was number one, and the average tenure for a Google employee was a year. And you think, like, when you see the shows and read the articles about that company, you think, who wouldn't want, I mean, like, ice cream bars and 
free bicycles and like you're just doing that kind of thing all day, but evidently it's not that enjoyable and people just bail on the average after a year, right? And even in ministry, these sorts of things exist too. Like the average stay for a youth pastor is about 18 months in any given church, and Kyle has surpassed that, so thank you, Kyle, for sticking around. Uh, it's the boss. It's the, it's the employer that keeps him around. But, um, so, but I mean, it's just like it's in, every, it's in every field where there's always this kind of turnover, and I don't know, uh, again, I want to tread lightly because you may or may not fall into that category of someone who loves their job or hates their job, or, or maybe you're just kind of like most people, and it's just, eh, I just kind of work to make a living and pay the bills, and that's, that's about it. Uh, and it begs the question, since we're in the church building today, what does the Scripture say about work? Does it say anything at all? Is it just something we have to deal with? It's a, it's a necessary evil. Like, what, what does it say about work? Now, there's a common misconception about work and the Scriptures, and it's been presented to us by some well-meaning Christians. Uh, they're wrong, but they're well-meaning. And it's simply that work is the result of us messing up back in the Garden of Eden, and God is angry, and therefore now we have to work. Now we have to punch a time clock. Now we have to make a living. Like there's this feeling that, or this thought, that um, work is the result of what theologians would call the curse. Like in Genesis 3, like when everything went south, it was after that that God said, oh, and because of this, I'm going to make you work for a living. Like that's, that's, that's your new lot in life, like you have to work, you have to make a living, you have to, you have to learn things and be skillful. Uh, and so the thought is that somehow in paradise, you know, back at the very, very beginning, that everybody was just chilling, like everybody was just walking around and doing their own thing, and you know, I don't know, you know, just everything was perfect. And then we made God mad, and so the result of that is you have to work. And that kind of makes sense, because that's what we do now. Like, if you, if you get in trouble in school, you basically have to do some work. You've got to write some stuff down 150 times, right? You're going to work for that. You're going to work this off. You're going to work off your punishment. You're going to work off your crime. You're going to work off the thing that you've done that's made me upset. So we get that, like, in our culture, and somehow we've inserted that into the Scriptures. Like, the scriptural story, we think, is we have to work because God is angry with us. Now, in fact, it's less a biblical understanding of work and more of an ancient Greek understanding of work, which is really, I mean, America is so Hellenistic in its thinking anyway that that makes sense to us. Now, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks would say that work is just a curse, nothing more, nothing less. Like, that's all it is. And the Greeks would often separate the physical from the spiritual. Both were diametrically opposed to each other. And so any work was cursed. And everything else, like the freedom of the mind and the soul and the spirit, that was the thing you were searching for. And so we kind of have that in our culture too, where work is just a means to an end, and that end is that we can release ourselves from any of this responsibility and just kind of live. But it's not a scriptural, it's not a scriptural understanding of work. In fact, the scripture is very, very different. I want to show you a couple of verses uh, from stories that you may or may not be familiar with, but in the first creation story in the scriptures, there's two back-to-back, one in chapter 1, one in chapter 2. And in chapter 1, the first one, it says this, you'll see it on the screen, and God blessed them, this is mankind making them, And God said to them, this is the part you probably heard before, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it. Now that's a cool word, isn't it? Like that just sounds powerful, like subdue, I will subdue you. But it does kind of mean have dominion over something, have control over something. But really what I want you to notice about this 
verses. This is like one of the first commands that humanity gets from God. And what God is saying here is, look, of course I've created this world, you're in it, it's great, uh, but there's this sense in which it's not quite complete. I mean, it's complete in, in that it's sufficient for life, it's sufficient for producing life, you can live here, you can breathe here, you can drink and eat here, it's all fine and good, but evidently there is a part of creation or the creative process that humans play, that humanity has to take part in, like Subdue the earth means to cultivate it, to perfect it even, to work it, to till the soil, to uh, take care of the things that uh, we have at our disposal. Uh, I don't know if you're following the whole Detroit story. It's a very sad story. But the thing that's going on in Detroit now that has made the news is like the number of stray dogs that are just running the streets. Because, I mean, this is a city where people are just leaving. Uh, the economy is terrible. The city has filed for bankruptcy. And it's just... I mean, this sort of story is making headlines at the same time Syria is making headlines. So it's, it's, it's obviously not just kind of like we need, we need a 40-second story here. There's some things going on. And like what's interesting about um, this particular story in Detroit is that like it's focused on stray animals. Like what is this really about? Well, it's kind of about this 128 from Genesis that you see that if humanity doesn't play its role in creation like taking care of something as simple as dogs or a city or a neighborhood, then it begins to deteriorate. That earth requires care. That societies require care. That culture requires care. And right here in the beginning of the story, God is telling humanity, look, you're not here to lay around because it's perfect. I need you to work. I need you to help and partner with me in the creation process. Now, the other thing I want you to see comes from the second creation story, uh, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, doesn't say relax and chill and do nothing. It says to what? To work it. And what's the last thing? And keep it. So this phrase, to keep it, is, again, about cultivation. It's not finished. I need you to make better of it. Here's what I've given you. Improve on it, right? Take what you have around you. Take the resources that you have, and I want you to keep it. I want you to take care of it. I want you to work it. Work it. Work. Now, this is, if you're following the Genesis narrative, nothing terrible has happened. No sin. No mistakes are mentioned. God isn't angry, and one of the first things that God says to humanity is, I need some help here. I need you to work the soil. I need you to work the garden. I need you to work the culture. I need you to work the earth in such a way that it improves upon itself. And so the very first picture that we get of work in the scriptures is not of God is angry, and therefore we have to put our time in. But it's somehow this invitation to partner with God's work in the world through what we can do. There's this creative partnership that takes place somehow in whatever we do, whether we design things, build things, teach things, write things, pastor things, whatever we do. Like there's no more divine job than less divine. I mean, every, whatever it is that we do, we take part in the whole process of caring for creation and for the world. This is why, by the way, um, 
philosophically, when people lose their jobs, it's quite depressing. Why would it be depressing? I mean, if work is a curse, right, if that's how we see it, if work is just this thing we have to do, and it's a drudgery and it's terrible, you would think it would make sense if we lose our job, it's like the greatest day ever. Like, oh, finally, I've been waiting to get fired, because now I can just do nothing. But the opposite is quite true. Now, it may feel that way for about two weeks, like during the severance time. Like, this is awesome. Like, I can do whatever I want to do, right? But eventually, we become quite disturbed by it because we start to cease to feel needed. We start to cease to feel, we cease to feel significant, like we're contributing anything to the world. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, uh, writes that the loss of work is deeply disturbing because that's what we're designed for. According to the scriptures, we're designed to make things happen, to be productive, to partner with God in his world through our work, whatever that may be. And when we cease to do that, it can be quite disturbing. Um, And if you've lost a job, you understand that feeling, especially if you've been without work for a long time. This is true for you. You understand this. And it begs... uh, to be considered that unfulfillment with our work, because that happens too, almost proves the scriptural mandate that we were supposed to find joy in it, that work was supposed to be and is supposed to be and intended to be something that we find fulfilling. If we're so unfulfilled with our work, it almost kind of proves the point that maybe work was not supposed to be unfulfilling. Maybe somehow it was supposed to be quite fulfilling, quite significant, quite enjoyable. Right, And so the question that I want to unpack for just a few minutes here is how, how is it that work can become so unfulfilling, unsatisfying? Now, admittedly, it may be the job. You may have a job that is just through and through unsatisfying. And that may be for different reasons. It may be that your employer is very difficult to work for. It may be that the environment is toxic. It may be that your job contributes to society in a negative way and you know it. It may be that you're constantly in between ethical issues that make you uncomfortable. It may be the job. It may be the nature of your work that causes you to be unsatisfied. But let's just assume that that's not it. Let's just assume that we're just generally unsatisfied with what we do for whatever reason that may be. Uh, and again, I guess you could include that maybe it is the job and this would work too. But if, if we were created to partner with God in the world through our work, as the scriptures teach us that we were, I mean, if that's true, if you believe that's true, if you believe that what we do in this world is in essence a partnership with God um, in subduing and working and keeping his world, then it only makes sense that work would lose its intended power and its intended attractiveness when, again, if work is for a partnership with God in the world, I'm going to explain this to you in a moment. If that's what it's for, in whatever field we're in, if, that's, if it's for this greater thing, it, it stands to reason that it would lose its power if work became anything less than that. If work became less than that, i.e., it became about some sort of self-advancement, if, if work became about whatever it will do for me, uh, then it would, it would stand to reason that it would begin to lose its power. 
it would become greatly unsatisfying. That if um, work became less than the greater good and more about the personal good, it would stand to reason that eventually it becomes quite unsatisfying because it's never, it's never quite, those demands are never quite met. Now I want to read you a story, uh, and we'll put one verse up here in a moment, but I want to read you the verses around it. This is a story that you may or may not be familiar with. It's one of the great Old Testament stories right before um, we get to the story of Abraham. So it's kind of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is just this um, barrage of images about humanity and what the world, what the world is like. Um, and it's, this, is a, this is the story of the Tower of Babel. Does anybody know this story? Uh, it, it appears that they built the Tower of Babel right next to our church building, one block north, that big brown you guys know what I'm talking about? We got, I mean, the, I, my office window looks right at the, and I got to watch them build that years ago, and I was like, what is that thing? It looks like a dirt dauber tower anthill. I don't know what it is, but uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And then there's the sovereign over here, which every time Jeff sings sovereign over us, we all chuckle inside, because <laughs> it is. It's right over us, so... Ministry jokes. They're the best, aren't they? <laughs> All right. I want you to follow this story, and I'm just going to read a little bit around it, and then we'll put the main verse on the screen for you. And this story is incredible. This is now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That's verse one. The whole earth had one language and the same words. What the writer is allowing us to see is this picture of earth like galvanized, like everybody's running in the same direction. There's like this unity movement. Verse 2 says, and as people migrated from the east, I want to explain this for a moment. Now, some of this is just geographical, but when when the Old Testament uses the phrase eastward or out of the east or they headed east, it's always a picture of moving away from God. When God closed down the Garden of Eden, it says that you know, humanity left, they left east of Eden. They left the garden out of the east. And so these phrases that come up in the Old Testament quite often, like the east, headed east, they left east. When Jonah was called by God, he got on a boat that headed east to Tarshish. He was running from God. This whole phrase, like, if you're heading east, it's not in God's direction, it's away from God's direction. So there's that going on too. So verse two has this whole picture of like, Earth has the same language, the same words, and everybody is running east. Everybody is heading east. And they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And verse 3 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks. So exciting, isn't it? And burn them thoroughly. End quote. Now, we're on this side of history, but understand that what's being described here is a new technology. They figured out how to make bricks stronger. So this is what's being said here. Like, I don't want to get into the historical, you know, pre-Bronze Age, blah, blah, blah. What's being said here is, we have figured out how to send text messages. <laughs> Just through space. You don't have to wait for a letter anymore. We know how to get it to you immediately. Like, this is what's being said here. Let's, let's, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. And then this is the verse I want you to see on the screen. Then they said, quote, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower 
with its top to the heavens. So stop there for a moment. This is this thing that we do when we discover new technologies. This new technology comes into play and says, oh, what can we do now? We can go higher and taller. Now, lest you think this is a silly story, the, the, the United States went through this during the skyscraper phase of our history. Like the first eight-story building went up in downtown Chicago and every city was like, oh, let's do it, let's go higher. We can go higher, taller. You know, and now we have these battles. Like, this is the tallest building in the world, although, you know, 400 feet of it's an antenna, but whatever. You know, and like, this is the thing we do. This is the thing that we do. Uh, we were coming back from Dragon Con yesterday, and um, we're walking up Peachtree, and you can see the Bank of America building. And my son is like trying to explain to me this water slide at Whitewater. And he says, It's like, uh, you see that building over there? I was like, Yeah, he's like, It's like that tall. A thousand feet, you know. <laughs> so, uh, where am I? Oh, this is what we do. When we have the means of going further and higher and faster, we find ways to do it. We say to each other, "We're excited. We're excited about it. let's let's go bigger. Let's go bigger, right?" It's funny to watch tennis matches now, and then back up fifty years. Like really, like. And now it's like, where'd the ball go? Like, you can't see the ball. Because somebody's like, I can make a racket that with the right conditioning of the human being, we can put this tennis ball through your head. You know, like, (laughs) this is the new, this is what it is. No one has ever said in sports, you know what? Like, let's, let's play golf, but less distance on the drive. Like, let's just not do that. No, it's like, how far can we go, right? It's all technology driven. So let us build. So there's nothing wrong with this first part. Let us build a city, a tower. It's fine. I mean, that's what God gives. Do it. Cultivate the earth. Do it. Do something great. Make it happen. But the next part I want you to see, and let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is the key hinge in the whole work vocation dialogue. Work is supposed to be about making a name for God in whatever we do. Like somehow through what we do, again, whether you teach, design, draw, uh, lead a company, whatever it is, somehow our efforts make a name for God. But in this story, we see what we often all do is that we, we assume, I can make a name for myself or even ourselves. We try to make it seem like a team thing. Like a name for ourselves. We can really do this. We can go far with this. And a couple things this story teaches us about just technology in general. One, again, it inspires us to go higher, faster, further. That's fine. That's great. Those are great discoveries. God is happy with that. No problem with that. But it also lures us into self-promotion. See, this is the thing that happens, like success and uh, advancement. It lures us into self-promotion, Right? So we have, again, we come back to this technology that we have today, like we can post pictures of our life, like, right? What, what have they become? Oh, cool, I can promote myself faster to more people, right? I can write this in a little status thing, and like, it's just, a, it's, I can promote myself faster to a broader audience. Like, it's never, you know, what's odd are the people who, like, try to promote other people. Like, that's really odd. But we just typically kind of come back, I mean, so... 
You know, we read a story like the Tower of Babel and think, this is so silly, but like, no, it's so real. This is what we do. And if work has the ability to make a name for ourselves, like if, if we work it hard enough, if we have the right degrees and we, we know how to work the job well and we know that that's going to bring fame to ourselves, work can become, and this is the downhill side of vocation, it can become an idol. It can become this thing that we worship. It can become this thing that we start to sacrifice for. Because that's what you do for an idol. Anything you sacrifice for is an idol. And so work becomes this thing that uh, we worship. And I want you to see the next part of the story, and I'll just read it to you. It says, verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So he's describing essentially a monopoly. Like, this is not a healthy thing. It's not a healthy thing. The world needs more than one operating system, right? And this is what God is saying, like, this is not a good thing. They will become so arrogant and so galvanized and so powerful that it will lead to injustice, it will lead to discrimination, it will lead to materialism, it will lead to all kinds of humanity being separated from what, it will lead to all kinds of bad things. And so he says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. I love how God does that. Like, the best thing to do is they can't understand each other. That would be the best thing. Like, the whole system crashes. That would be the best thing for them. Right? So come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And I think what you really want to hear, what's being described here, is just, again, something that happens time and time and time again when self-promotion and sin and pride become the driving factors of any of, any of our jobs and work. Like, it, 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 it crashes relational systems. It, there's, there's, it, the environments become untrusting. They become competitive. They become negative. And this is what sin does. Sin brings confusion and disconnect and dislocation to all relationships. That's what it does. And in our work, it's the same thing. If work becomes this thing that we use to make a name for ourselves instead of a name for how great God is, then it starts to go the wrong direction. Now work is an interesting thing because in work two things happen. In work we discover who we are. Like that's one of the great things about having a job is that you kind of discover who you are and also who you're not, right? You kind of figure out like I thought I'd be good at this, but I'm, I'm not. I'm terrible at this, right? Uh, when I was in youth ministry, my dream was I'm going to do this until they tell me I'm too old. Like, that was, what, that was my plan. Like, how long are you going to do this? Until they, you know, till, like a children of the corn thing, like, you can't be here anymore. You've hit this certain age where you got to go, right? And so I had these people on my radar, like some of these great, you know, youth ministry veterans in their 50s. I'm like, I can do that. I can run all the way into that, you know, into that area, right? I can do this. 
Um, and it turns out that I didn't. I mean, I made it 15, 16 years. That's a long time. I uh, was able to see many kids graduate, see a lot of things, you know, that I would never have gotten to see. But I didn't, I definitely didn't make it because I started here when I was 33. So, like, I definitely had a long way to go before I had reached my goal. And I got to tell you that one of the things that was really hard for me in coming here uh, almost six, seven years ago now was me having to sort of break away from this theological confusion that I was only supposed to do what I was doing. Like, this is where God wants me to be, and I can't go anywhere else, because that'll really upset him. Right? So I had this, we all feel like, I've been called to do this, or this is what I was born to do, or whatever, but that can be sometimes a very uh, bad way of viewing how God works. I heard Barbara Brown Taylor say something quite controversial once, where she said that, the whole sovereignty of God line of thinking, in other words, he's playing chess with the world, right? The whole sovereignty of God way of thinking has made atheists out of more people than anything. And it's better to have this kind of healthy sense of agnosticism when it comes to what God wants me to do with my life because maybe he doesn't care. Maybe what he cares most about is with whatever you do, do it for his fame and glory which I think is what Paul says in the letter to the Colossians, like, hey, whatever you do in word or deed, which I think includes everything, just do it all for his fame, for his glory. Like, show the world that you are God's man or woman through what you do. But whatever it is that you do, do that. Now, does God call people to certain things? I'm sure he does. And for many, many years, 15, 16 years, I thought, this is, this is what I was called to do, and I can't do anything else. This feeling of scarcity, like I can't get out. And so part of the process in coming here, which took about a year, half of that was just working myself off of this theology that I'm not allowed to be anywhere else, and that God can't use me if I'm not here, which is such a small view of God. Like God, God's that deficient where, I'm sorry, you moved you move towns, like I, that wasn't in the plan. Like you, you were supposed to stay in Locust Grove. I don't know what I'm going to do now. It's just not how it works, you know? So all that to say, part of working, you discover these things. You discover that, you know, I can do other things. And maybe I don't need to do this anymore. But the other thing that work does for us is that It empowers us. It actually puts us in a position every day of the week to be of good use to others. And this, I think, is perhaps one of the the greatest things about work is that, I mean, maybe you work in a service industry where, like, the thing that your company creates or the thing that you do or provide is actually a service to the community. Maybe that's what you do. Um, Or maybe, maybe that's not what happens. I mean, maybe what you're doing is you don't see that, okay, this particular job, this corporation, this firm or whatnot... Like, maybe there isn't, like, this direct positive impact on the community, or maybe there's something you don't see. But the thing about it is, even if it's not, even if it's that isolated from society, which I don't think that's the case, um, there is still great good to be done within the ecosystem of your staff. I teach a class at Point University on Monday nights, Healthy Congregations. I'm not sure what they asked me, but I'm just kidding. You guys are awesome. Uh, (laughs) But they were going through this whole, like the first three lectures have just been about leader, like the leader system. And we talked about the ecosystem of a staff, a healthy staff. And 
I like the word ecosystem because it, it forces us to think about the whole. It forces us to think, that, think about how none of us stand alone. Like we all contribute to each other's success and also to, uh, we also feel the weight of each other's failures. And so if you work in a company where that's never crossed your mind, like it's like I don't really care what happens to other people, then you're kind of in this negative environment where you're not thinking about or not, you're not able to think about maybe God wants to use me for the good of others in this setting. Um, we all work in an 8 by 10 room back here. It's not separated. We're all in the same space. And um, the way the desks are set up is Lindsay and I, we just stare at each other all day. Like we're just looking. It, it's not that creepy really, but like we angle so we don't have to how you doing all day? Uh, Kyle's back's to us, so he's lucky. You know, he he can just sleep, right? You could just, he just, you know, how you do in class. Like. But uh, but the thing about working in a shared space so small is that the the good is like, man, we, the collaboration is high, very high. The ecosystem is very present. Like we're all here. Like here we go. Like and the the emails that you don't have to send. Like, hey, I got a question. Like, you don't have to send that. You can just ask that question, right? The downside is we're that close to each other. And so there's just going to be seasons where it's like, man, everybody get out. Everybody just get out of my space, right? (laughs) Uh, But nobody has claim to the space, so we're all just stuck there in each other's space, and it can be one of those things. But the thing about what we try and cultivate here and what is best for any organization is that it has this culture of we're kind of here to serve others within the company, within the business, within the firm, because that's better. That's better for the greater good of what we're trying to do. And work, if we, as Christians, if you're a Christian, work should be viewed as a means of loving your neighbor. And it's one of the greatest already set up systems to do so, because there you are. You're on a team, you're with a staff, you've got people that you're seeing each and every day. And if if you wake up every day and say, uh, God, my prayer today is that I will be able to love my neighbor at work. Like we somehow think that only happens in this room or in some sort of alternate universe, but that command is an everyday, on the ground, we do this, we love our neighbors. And work is a fantastic environment. And it's all fueled by this idea that, hey, what I'm doing, again, whatever that is, because I don't think there's any more divine jobs than less divine. Like we're all like we're all part of God's good earth, and we all have been called to partner with Him through our work, whether it's again designing, drawing, teaching, counseling, homemaking, I mean, whatever. Like we all have this call in our life to partner with Him through our work and to make a name not for ourselves, but for Him. Um, I know I know Phil will like this, but some John Coltrane. Can we do some John Coltrane? Anybody a John Coltrane fan? Okay, I love Supreme, all right. Uh, and the liner notes on a love Supreme, check this out. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, right? So here we go. Even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues, may he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. Just a musician viewing his hard work as a means of partnering with God in the world. Seeing 
what he does is an offering to God. And I show you this statement because this is not a minister, this is not a pastor, this is not some sort of church worker, not even a parachurch worker. It's jazz. It's pretty seedy. Right? These aren't Christian clubs they're playing in. Which I don't even know what that is, by the way, but... (laughs) You know what I'm saying, though. Here's a guy living in a world that might even be more difficult than yours. And when the record comes out, it's, here's our offering. Because we feel and believe that what we do is a product of God. Like that's, he's called us to make the world a better place and to give glory to him through our work. So let me show you this last slide just so you don't forget that work is an already set environment in which each of us can continually practice the command of Jesus to love our neighbor. Uh, Let me close with reading uh, a quote about vocation again from Barbara Brown Taylor. She says, One common problem for people who believe that God has one particular job in mind for them is that it is almost never the job they're presently doing. This means that those who are busiest trying to figure out God's purpose for their lives are often the least purposeful about the work they're already doing. They can look right through the people they work with since those people are not players in the divine plan. They find ways to do their work without investing very much in it since that work is not part of the divine plan. The mission to read God's mind becomes a strategy for keeping their minds off their present unhappiness until they become like ghosts going through the motions of the people they once were but no longer wish to be. And then she says, in closing, the point of work and passion behind work and fulfillment and joy and all that, the point is to find something that feeds your sense of purpose. Almost this freedom to quit your job, right? Like, fine, go find something that you can be passionate about. But to be willing to look low for that purpose as well as high. Like, there isn't, it's not about making a name for ourselves. It's about making a name for God. And if you work, I'm just going to tell you, if you work to make a name for yourself, you'll never be happy. You'll have, you know, you'll have fits and starts on being happy, but you're, you're not going to be fulfilled because that's not what work was created for. You're running work up the wrong hill. Like it's just not made for that. It's made to be fulfilling through this understanding and practice of partnering with God in his world through your work to love your neighbor. Got it? Now, it's a lot of, I mean, this could really be a five, six, seven week series, and maybe it should be, because we all have jobs and we all work. But let this at least be an introduction to how God sees what you do and how it matters to his plan for creation. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll take communion together. Um, And if you're new with us, uh, it's fairly simple. There are two tables in the front, two in the back, and we do this each week. It is, by all accounts, the central piece of our gathering. It's why we come together to remember the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And as the great Nicene Creed says, we await the resurrection. We wait for it. We wait for it. And as we take the communion, that's what we're doing. We're just putting our hope in the future uh, while at the same time remembering 
the past where God showed his grace and love and mercy uh, for us. I read uh, a quote that I was going to share with you, but it it was really, really long, so I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, But this one theologian said, you know, when the whole incarnation, God coming to earth in a person of Jesus, like all these things were available at the time, like Jesus could have come as a powerful philosopher, he could have come as a political figure, he could have come as a king, he could have come all these different things, but he came as a laborer, a worker, a carpenter, a creator of things. And I just think that's so appropriate as we talk about work. I mean, even God himself made himself as a person in our world a manual laborer and just involved in creating and producing. Again, just continuing the work God has given all of us to do to make the world a better place and to make a name for him and not for us. And so as we take the communion today, remember that, that God came here uh, and this whole picture of love and grace and mercy is found in the cross. And so let me pray for you and then we can take communion together and then we'll sing. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for, um, for the jobs that we have. Thank you that we are able to eat, to pay rent, um, to raise a family. And God, I recognize that there are perhaps many in this room and if the polls are correct, 70 some percent, they don't like their job. And um, it can be very difficult to wake up on Monday mornings and to be excited about going in and working. And sometimes we fail to remember that work is a gift, like being able to make a difference and an impact, large or small, is a gift. And so, Father, I just pray that in the short amount of time that we've spent together talking about this this morning, that it has been encouraging, that you will implant this in the hearts of all of us throughout the week and the weeks to come. God, for those who feel trapped, for those who feel um, so disappointed in the life that they've made or the life they feel like they've been dealt, I, I pray that you provide ways out. I pray that you provide the right counsel and that joy can be restored uh, to their lives. God, as we take communion just now, let us remember that all of those things are quite insignificant compared to your love and your mercy and grace that you've shown us on the cross. As we take this just now, just move through the room with a spirit of peace and contentment. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.